Good morning. Amos, congratulations. I haven't seen you yet today. You did very well. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, but my sermon will focus on verses 5 through 11. This is God's word. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he, that is Paul, found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And they resisted and blasphemed. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thanks, O oh God, for this portion of your word that we're going to look at and study this morning. Illumine our eyes. Uh, help us to understand with our hearts, O oh God, and might you be glorified by the faith and obedience that comes through the work of your Spirit working with the Word of God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. A few of you have come to me at least one uh, has come to me this morning with almost a look of panic and saying, are you leaving now? And uh, no, we're not. Um, God willing, we will be leaving uh, next month and Terry probably uh, in the month of August. Um, but this is just one of the times when we could uh, be with you. And so uh, Tim asked me to preach, or I don't know if it was you, Tim, or if it was Stephen, and uh, do something during Sunday school. So I'm going to speak about what it means to be a missionary, and you might say, well, that's fine for you. Well, it does have application to you, and I hope to point that out as, uh, as we go along. What does it mean to be a missionary? Well, the first thing I find in this passage is it means teaching the Word of God. When Silas and Timothy came to Corinth, 
they brought encouraging news of the churches in Greece, and they also brought a gift from the church in Philippi to give to Paul. And that gift gave Paul the freedom to preach without having the hindrance of having to support himself by making tents. You do that for me in helping to pay my salary, and you allow me to give myself to the Word of God, and I thank you for that. I've actually, I've heard missionaries do it many times, but I've only heard uh, one pastor thank uh, his congregation for supporting him, and that's a great thing uh, when a pastor does thank um, his congregation for supporting him and allowing him to be free from worldly care and so that he doesn't have to make tents. Because of the gift that came from Philippi, the text says that Paul gave himself over to the word. Another translation says he devoted himself completely to the word. He focused on it and gave himself to it to communicate it to those in Corinth. And verse 11 says the same thing. He was teaching the word of God among them. When I was a boy growing up in Bloomington, uh, the pastor at the church I grew up in, he switched churches um, for a period of three months with a man who was an Anglican priest in England. And that was the first time I encountered uh, the Book of Common Prayer. And in the Book of Common Prayer, and I'm not, I don't remember exactly where it is, but it talks about how we are to take the Word of God into our lives. Do any of you know what it says? Um, I don't know if there are any Anglicans here or people who read the Book of Common Prayer. But it says we are to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Word of God. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Word of God. Jeremiah chapter 15 says, Thy words were found, and I ate them. And thy words became for me the joy and the delight of my life. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Paul gave himself to the word. He read it. He studied it. He inwardly digested it. And I don't see how you can do that without memorizing it and meditating upon it. He gave himself to the word of God. And he proclaimed that word to those who were in Corinth, and specifically those who were in the synagogue at Corinth. And it says he was solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So we know that his proclamation focused on Christ, and I've been thinking about that uh, for a while. And there's a little book that we uh, have in our library here and no one has ever checked it out. What I love about this book is it's written by a Puritan, the grandfather of Jonathan Edwards. And one of the things I like about uh, Puritan books is their titles. You have no doubt what the book is about by, because they say a lot of what it's about in the title. And speaking of focusing on Christ, um, this book is titled The Safety, The Safety of Appearing on the Day of Judgment in the Righteousness of Christ. 
the safety of appearing on the day of judgment in the righteousness of Christ. There's no other way that you can safely appear before God on the day of judgment except to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I take it that Paul talked about that when he proclaimed Christ to the Jews in the synagogue. He proved to them that the Messiah that they had waited for for years and years was this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and that he was their only hope of appearing safely on the day of judgment, but to be clothed in Christ. And the only way you can be clothed in Christ is to come to him and be united to him by faith. And that is the only way you, are, you can be united to him. Just like a, a man and a woman are united together in marriage, the only way you can be united to Christ is by faith in Christ alone. Now this passage, this verse 5, is very helpful to me as a missionary because there are lots of tasks to which I could give myself in the city where we work in Zambia there are missionaries who teach English, who care for the sick, who run orphanages, who build homes, who train young men to be auto mechanics, who serve as a conduit for Western donors, who help the poor start and run small businesses, who teach about HIV and AIDS, who serve as advocates for the oppressed. This passage tells me that if you do any of those things, somehow the word of God has to be central to what you do. And if it's not central, then you need to change so that the Word of God and teaching the Word of God is absolutely central to what you do. When I first went out about, golly, about 10 years ago to Zambia, um, I was fired by statements of great missionaries like the one by William Carey where he said, expect great things for God, attempt great things, um, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And I said, okay, yes, that's what we're going to do. We're going to attempt great things for God and he will do great things. But then soon after we got there, uh, you're overwhelmed by the masses of people and your own smallness. And in most African countries, you see people. Um, here, they're just in cars. But there you see them because they're walking, they're taking minibuses, they're riding their bikes, and a few are in cars. But you see them constantly. You start to think, what in the world could I do? And that's exactly completely appropriate. What in the world can I do? And the answer is, not much. But the word of God is not bound in any way like that. And those who proclaim the word of God will find that God does do great things. The word of God does not have the bounds that I have as a person. The word of God is infinitely powerful because it is not my word, it is God's word. So the first thing that a missionary does is he teaches the word of God. The second is he warns those who are opposed to the gospel. When Paul preached to the Jews, they opposed him and slandered him and slandered the Messiah he proclaimed. 
Now, what did Paul do in response to that opposition? In verse 6, it says he shook out his garments. Now, that was a symbolic gesture, and it expressed his unwillingness to have any connection with the Jews or their synagogue. Why did he do it? He did it because his master told him to do that. His master, the Lord Jesus, gave an express command where he said, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet when you leave that house or that town. So Paul actually did it. He warned the Jews of their opposition and he warned them of the consequences. And he declared himself to be innocent of their blood. The, the imagery there comes from the book of Ezekiel and it's that of a watchman. Cities at that time had walls around them and the watchman used to walk around the walls. And if he saw danger coming, he would sound the alarm. And if he sounded the alarm, then he was innocent of the blood of any who might die in an attack. But if he did not, if he did not sound the alarm, then their blood would be required at his hand. And so that's what Paul is doing. So you can't just say the safety of appearing on the day of judgment clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have to say that, but you also have to talk about the eternal danger of those who appear on the day of judgment before the throne of God clothed in their own righteousness. That is danger. That is fear. That is eternal torment. And so a missionary, if he doesn't proclaim that, he's not being faithful to the one he serves. That's especially helpful to me because missionaries are tempted to pander. If you've done raising support or if you've worked as a missionary for a while, you know exactly what you're supposed to say. To churches, when you report to them, you know exactly what you're supposed to say and it's very tempting to tell them what they want to hear. And this passage tells me that I can't. I have to tell it exactly like it is. I have to speak to you exactly like it is and I have to warn you of the eternal torment you will face if you appear before the seat of judgment and you are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But I can also tell you of the great safety, the great safety that there is and joy if you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when I'm on the field, it's very tempting to soften the message in many ways. And a missionary is unfaithful unless he warns those who are opposed to the gospel and who do not receive the gospel with joy. One of the things that Terry and I struggle with is what we do when we're surrounded by poverty. And poverty, that's a bit different uh, than, than what we face here. A lot of times we think that we have economic struggles because we can't fix the air conditioning in our car. That's a first world struggle. Uh, third, word, third world struggles are much different. 
and one can start to get overwhelmed by the physical poverty one deals with. And one of the things that missionaries have to do is they have to maintain the absolute priority of the soul and that it is far worse to perish eternally than to perish temporally. And so you have to warn the poor of their danger of not appearing on the day of judgment clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And you have to constantly put the spiritual in front of the physical and that you are unfaithful unless you do so. Thirdly, being a missionary means experiencing sufferings and surprises. Paul suffered as a result of his proclamation. We don't know the details, but there certainly was the threat of physical harm in some way. I'm glad to be able to speak to you because I know that your pastors and elders have taught you that suffering is normal in a fallen world. It's just something you're going to have to go through. Sufferings are normal when you have an enemy like Satan. Sufferings are normal as a result of your own sin and some of your suffering will be partially your own fault. And sufferings are also normal in the African context. Those verses in Proverbs chapter 30 where the author says, give me neither poverty nor riches are real because it says, do not give me poverty because then I might steal and dishonor my Lord. That's real. Much suffering comes because of poverty and the reality of stealing. Much suffering comes when worldviews collide. Much suffering comes when you're living in a developing world context. Those things have all impacted our family and most of you know some of the details of that. They're real. Um, it's very nice to be able to say that Sarah can go over to the mall on her own because when we were in Africa, she couldn't go out on her own. It was too dangerous. John could, and that was fun. Africa's a great place for a boy to grow up. He would always come back and, from his excursions and tell us, uh, Dad, do you know I've been on top of that building? And uh, I said, how did you get up there? And uh, he said, we just walked up. We just parked our bikes and walked up and acted like we knew what we were doing and we were supposed to be there. So Africa's a great place for a boy to grow up, but not great if you're the father of three girls. But suffering is, all, is, is, is just a normal part of missionary life, but surprises also. Surprises of God's grace are also a part of missionary work. Paul, if you look again at... Uh, verses 6 and 7. What does he do? He shakes out the dust out of his garments and he says, I am now going to the Gentiles. I am innocent of your blood. And so he, he departs from the synagogue. He goes to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus whose house was right next door to the synagogue and he says, okay, I'm not going to preach to the Jews anymore. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And what happens? The leader of the synagogue is converted the leading Jew in the whole town is converted. Surprise. And by God's grace, we have also experienced those surprises. I've been having surprises quite often in my email inbox. 
as we are uh, looking at some new opportunities to do work uh, of training men for the ministry in Zambia, new open doors. And it's very much an encouragement where, where you see those surprises. So there are surprises and there are difficulties, and that's just normal missionary life. It doesn't mean you're bipolar. It's just normal missionary life. Fourthly, being a missionary means building the church. Paul continued preaching, as it says in verse 8, and it says that not only Crispus believed, but many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. Their number increased day by day. That means the church was being built day by day. Missionary work is always church work. It has to build Christ's church. If it doesn't build Christ's church, then missionaries simply need to stop doing it and to start doing something that does build the church. And as you support missionaries, you need to hold them accountable and ask them that question where you look them in the eye and say, how does your work that you're doing build the church? And if that if, that, if their answer is a little bit too roundabout, you need to say, how can you more closely tie your work into actually building the church? And you need to ask them, are you a member of a local church there? Are you there week after week after week, sitting under the preaching of the word and uh, fellowshipping with those believers? You need to ask that. Because missionaries can oftentimes be freelancers doing things kind of off on their own, accountable to no one. That's a problem. Missionary work is church work. And I hope that each one of you loves the church. Promises are attached to the church. Christ promised that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He has made no promise to me that he would build my ministry. He has made no promise to me that he would build my theological college or an NGO or an orphanage. Promises in the word of God are attached only to the church. And when we pray, we plead those promises with God. And we said, you said that you would build your church. That's the way you are to pray. That's what it means to plead the promises of God. You said you would do this. You said... You would do this. Please do it. Do it now. Build your church. All missionary work must build the church. Christ loves the church. My imagination has been taken over the last several years with the images of Revelations, Revelation 1, 2, and 3 where it says that Christ walks amongst the churches. He is present among them. He knows them. He knows their endurance. He knows their love. He knows their zeal. He knows the churches that tolerate false teachers. He knows their sufferings. He knows those who are about to be thrown into prison. He knows where the false doctrine is being proclaimed. And he knows which of the churches are on the verge of ceasing to be a true church. Christ loves the church and gave himself specifically for the church. 
Missionaries must be like that, and you as a church must hold them accountable to that. Fifthly, missionary work means placing our confidence in God. In verses 9 and 10, it says that one night, the Lord appeared to Paul in a vision. And it says that he uh, told him to do three things. He was not to be afraid, he was to keep speaking, and he was not to be silent. Now I take it that those were personal, those weren't general, and that those addressed exactly what Paul was facing. It may not fit with our understanding of the Apostle Paul, but I take it that this is exactly what Paul was tempted to do. He was, a, he was being tempted to be silent and to stop speaking and to give in to fear. That's normal for a missionary to be silent to not say what he needs to say and to give in to fear the Lord addressed that and said don't do that don't be afraid don't be silent keep speaking I think it was in Martin Lloyd-Jones's book on preaching that he taught me a little bit about what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. And I've tried to follow his advice that he gives in that, in that book. And a lot of it has to do with if ever you are prompted to pray for something, you don't need to wonder where that prompting comes from. It comes from the Spirit of God. And he says, stop right there and pray. If you are ready to give a word of warning or uh, rebuke or encouragement, do it. Don't, don't say, ah, it's not the right time. Just do it. The Lord also gave him three assurances. In verse 10, he said, I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. And God will draw his elect to himself. Now you say, where does that come from? That's the last phrase in verse 10. For I have many people in this city. That's God saying that there are many people that I have chosen that are in this city who will believe in my son as a result of your work, your proclamation. Sometimes people can start to think that the doctrine of election actually discourages evangelism. Well, if the elect are going to become Christians anyway, why do anything? Election is the only hope of missionaries. It's the only hope of pastors. Because we're told that as Tim and Max and Stephen and Jake and Jody and Lucas and others proclaim the word from this pulpit, proclaim the safety of appearing on the day of judgment clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When they proclaim that, God will draw people to himself. People will see the ugliness of their sin and the hopelessness of their lives and the certainty of the judgment that they will face. They know it inside. And they will flee to Christ. Now, right now, Tim doesn't know who's elect. Stephen doesn't know who's elect. 
Only the Lord knows those whom he has chosen. But there are many people in this city of Bloomington who will believe in Christ because of your witness. And that's the only hope that I have in Indola, that God will draw people to himself through the proclamation of the word and setting forth Christ. I've been very encouraged by meditating on the 17th chapter of the book of John where Jesus prays toward the end of his earthly ministry. And that book or that prayer is absolutely filled with the doctrine of election. Yes, it says that God has granted to Jesus authority over all mankind. But Christ said, I am praying not for the world but I am praying to those you, Father, have given me out of the world. They belong to you, and they have now accepted that you sent me. And I don't just pray for them only, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. That's right here. That's us. Their word has been committed to writing and we are proclaiming it this morning. And people are coming to Christ. God is drawing his elect to himself. It is the only hope that pastors have, that elders have, that missionaries have. That God will graciously bring his chosen ones, chosen before the foundation of the world, loved before the foundation of the world, but right now, under God's wrath, and in danger, in danger of eternal judgment. Now you say, how do you hold all that together? You preach all of it. You preach the fact that each one of us are born children of Adam, sinful because of his sin, and lost because of his sin, and under judgment because of his sin, and headed for death because of his sin. But there is the gospel that it is the great privilege of missionaries to hold forth and to say, come to Christ. Not as an invitation, but as a command. Come to Christ. He is merciful and he will not reject you. He will not push you away. He will accept you and give you to be clothed in his righteousness on the day of judgment. And that is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for this congregation, for those who at this moment are not clothed in the righteousness of your Son. And I pray, O oh God, that they would turn even this morning to him and look to him and cast themselves on him for life or death and that you would clothe them as you said you would in the righteousness of your Son. And I pray, O oh God, that you will help this church to hold missionaries accountable to build the church and to hold forth the word of life and to hold forth Christ and warn people of the great and eternal consequences of slandering him and of not worshiping him. Help us now, O oh God, as we continue to worship you by taking part in the supper that he told us to take part in. 
For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.